You're listening to a podcast from Carving Out a Space for the History of Emotions. This conference took place on the 18th of January 2020 in University College Dublin. The Carving Out a Space for the History of Emotions conference was organised as part of the event series Worrying About the Field of the History of Emotions in Ireland. The series was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and the conference was in partnership with the UCD School of English Drama and Film, the UCD School of History and the UCD Humanities Institute. The second keynote speaker at the conference was Dr Tiffany Watts-Smith from Queen Mary, University of London. Her paper was entitled Schadenfreude and Drag Queens, Improvising Emotional Styles. Anyway, I'm going to talk today about um, drag queens and, uh, and Schadenfreude and um, uh, I'm sure you all know what Schadenfreude is, but just in case you don't, this is the, this is the malicious glee that you might feel in the misfortunes of other people, um, uh, maybe in the uh, shame and embarrassment of other people, maybe in just the sort of minor mishaps of other people, um, comes from the German uh, Schaden, meaning damage, Freude, meaning joy. Uh, drag queens, I, I'm sure, need no introduction. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I actually wrote a book about Schadenfreude um, a few couple of years ago, and it was quite a short book, and, and I got to the end of the book, and, um, and it, it, I had this publishers, and I was having dinner with a friend of mine who is um, uh, a, a part-time drag queen. And, uh, and he said, well, of course you know, this drag queens know all about Schadenfreude. You know, and I, and I had that horrible moment, I'm sure it's all happened to, to many of you, once you've handed something in when, when you thought, oh... Of course, you know, that, that would have been the thing to write about. That would have been really interesting. So uh, as a sort of side project over the last year or so, I've been, I've been sort of tapping away at this question about Schadenfreude and, and drag queens, because it, it does indeed seem to me that there is um, a really interesting affinity uh, between drag queens and, and Schadenfreude, um, whether that's a sort of um, a bitch drag queen kind of throwing shade, uh, mocking uh, a rival... Um, whether that's laughing at the, at the downfalls uh, of another drag queen, perhaps during a, a, um, a, a beauty pageant, um, uh, whether um, this is a drag queen uh, who was known as uh, Scheidenfreude, so this is an Australian drag queen. Uh, she changed her name, actually, to Shy Gray because it turned out that no-one uh, could pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but, but part of her act, as, as, as is the case in many drag acts, is, um, is uh, paying homage to kind of moments of celebrity downfall and the ways in which um, female celebrities like Britney Spears or Marilyn Monroe a long time ago uh, become this kind of focus of public, a kind of greedy public appetite for the spectacle of their downfall. Um, so I'm interested in the way that, Schaden, um, that, that drag queens appropriate schadenfreude, where display excessive and camp schadenfreude, uh, but also elicit schadenfreude in their audiences. Um, and, and how I think, particularly with a kind of global phenomenon, which is RuPaul's drag race, um, how some of these moments have been kind of encapsulated and, and, and circulated as gifts on social media and so on. This kind of campy, ironic pleasure taken in the misfortunes of others being part of the way at least uh, we um, uh, the, part of the way in which we sort of process some of the affective predicaments of our age whether that is um, a, a sort of heightened sense of competition uh, or whether that is the kind of mass uh, rejoicing when a politician um, has a hot mic gaff or you know makes an idiot of themselves in some other way so, um, so I was interested in this question, and, and as a historian um, uh, who, who's interested in performance, I, I was curious about where um, this aesthetic 
relationship had come from. So when did drag queens start uh, demonstrating this sort of campy, malicious glee uh, in other people's misfortunes? So that was one question I was interested in, and that I'll talk about today. But the other question I was interested in, um, uh, more theoretically, is, um, is what does this relationship between schadenfreude and drag tell us about how emotions change, what processes shape emotional change over time, and particularly how um, individual agents shape this change. Uh, and this is, the, um, this is the improvisation word in the title. Um, so, uh, of course, as many I'm sure know, um, affect has been very significant for uh, scholars who work on cross-dressing um, for example, Judith Butler brilliantly writes about the kind of giddy laughter that happens with the loss of the gender normal, she puts it, when, when we're confronted with um, a drag act. Um, and certainly more recently, um, scholars have written a lot about trauma and shame in relation to trans performers. But um, I've never read anything, um, perhaps I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I've never read anything about schadenfreude and drag queens, even though it is this very sort of obvious part of a drag aesthetic um, nowadays. And, and it's, probably, um, it's probably not a complete um, surprise that we don't hear about schadenfreude. Um, it is, I think, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this book, um, Sianna Guy's Ugly Feelings. Um, this is a wonderful uh, a sort of portrait of how certain emotions get overlooked in the critical discourse. So, so an emotion like love or anger uh, or rage has a kind of very strong um, uh, visibility within uh, discussions of the history of emotions and, and, and broader critical discourse where affects are relevant. Um, because these are the emotions which seem to be able to create change. Uh, they are dramatic and exciting and important. But, but, but there are obviously lots of emotions that then get overlooked. So she talks about envy and boredom, which I think is a very interesting emotion. And, and I think that schadenfreude really nicely fits into this uh, description that she, that she makes. Um, these, these ugly feelings are, are critical blind spots. Uh, and one of the reasons why they're blind spots is because historically they are linked with moments of a kind of thwarted or blocked agency. So schadenfreude traditionally has been understood, and I'll talk about this in a bit more later, but has traditionally been understood as a kind of the psychic revenge of the impotent. So the person who can't shout back or punch their oppressor or you know, yell at someone instead furtively takes malicious glee when they see that person make a mistake. Um, so, so this is a, so Schadenfreude is an emotion that's, all, that's sort of already established to be part of a kind of moment of, of impotence or, or suspended agency. Uh, and she makes this, this point, I think it's useful, that uh, negative affects are, are more likely to be stripped of their critical impl implications when the impassioned subject is female. So I'm going to come back to that uh, in a bit. But this is the these are questions then, I think, about agency about femininity, and about these minor affects. So I'm interested in this talk um, in triangulating these questions of performance, of ugly feelings, and of, and of agency. And I'm hoping to, uh, to sort of foreground the processes through which emotional change or changing emotions can happen. Um, so I suppose uh, this talk is going to be in three parts. So the first part, I'm going to talk a bit about language, and emotional styles, which is a phrase I've heard a few times today. 
Um, in the second part, I'm going to talk about a drag artist called Douglas Bing, who was um, very famous in the 1930s. Um, and I'm going to think a little bit about how he and other um, drag performers improvised with different existing emotional styles to create um, a very vivid and evocative kind of malicious and gleeful camp persona. Um, and then finally, um, uh, in the last part, I'll turn to looking at a musical comedy uh, called First a Girl that was um, released in 1933. Um, and, and I want in this part to argue that, um, that the kind of improvisations that drag performers did with Schadenfreude um, not only kind of created a new style, but also changed some of the meanings and um, values, I think, associated with Schadenfreude at that time. Um, I'm hoping to show that Schadenfreude turns from being a spiteful feeling into what Sontag uh, calls, in her, in her notes on camp, calls a tender feeling. So the tenderness of Schadenfreude. Okay. Um, so Rob, uh, in his talk this morning, talked a little bit about concept uh, development. Um, and this, I think, traditionally historians of emotion or people interested in how emotional categories change over time have tended to kind of turn to the dictionary enthusiastically um, for the, as their sort of first resource. And so, so this is something that I did when I started looking at schadenfreude. Uh, the word schadenfreude first... It uh, shows up in the English language in um, around 1850. Um, one of the first mentions is, is on uh, on the study is in on the study of words. This is by the Archbishop of Dublin um, and amateur philologist R.C. Trench, and he calls Schadenfreude a linguistic token of sin. So you know exactly what he thinks about it. Um, but um, probably much to his dismay, uh, within the next kind of 30 years, you get writers and journalists in, in English using this word all the time. They get really excited about it, you know, in that way that when you suddenly find a word for a feeling that you didn't know that there was a word for, and then, you know, and then you want to use it all the time. So you get lots of writers using this word in a very fun, playful way. Um, uh, Thomas Carlyle um, talks about feeling feeling schadenfreude at the imminent passing of the Electoral Reform Act. He thinks, oh, Parliament's going to... He doesn't agree with the act, and he thinks Parliament's going to be thrown into chaos. Have I not a kind of secret satisfaction of the malicious or even of the judiciary kind? Schadenfreude. Mischief joy, the Germans call it, but really it is justice joy. <laughs> um, and then we have a... Um, uh, uh, a few years later, 20 years later, we have a journalist discussing... I roared with laughter when I first read this, but I might not be able to quite do it justice. So uh, William Gull, as any historians of medicine might know, is a kind of pioneer of what today would be called clean eating, you know, sort of a really abstemious lifestyle. You didn't really eat meat, you didn't really drink. So, uh, and then the news broke out that he himself had become ill. And the doctors who, uh, who didn't agree with his approach um, uh, sort of went around blaspheming. They were really enjoying they had a certain amount of schadenfreude at the news that this poor doctor um, was ill. Um, so, uh, so this is what we get in the kind of middle to late 19th century. But uh, as, um, as um, uh, Anglo-German tensions um, ramp up uh, in the 1890s, um, what you see when you search in newspapers and, and look at dictionaries is that things really start to change. 
So certainly in the newspapers, then suddenly you have a situation where the only mention of the word Schadenfreude comes in relation to the to, to Germans and to and to as a sort of diagnosis of a sort of German inferior emotional uh, an inferior emotional state. So there's the German journalists who are having orgies of Schadenfreude every time the Allies are defeated um, by the Second World War. Why are Germans brutal? There is a German word Schadenfreude, which means enjoying the suffering of others. And uh, the German word Schadenfreude is evidence of, of, of a warped mentality. So, that, so here you have the word Schadenfreude being deployed to sort of illustrate um, the inferior emotional life um, of the enemy. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that this discourse kind of relies on and that you can hear through the lines of it is a kind of much older um, association with, of Schadenfreude with, as a kind of feminine failure, so triangulated with envy and spite and malicious gossip. Um, Nietzsche um, called uh, Schadenfreude the revenge of the impotent or the powerless. Uh, and, and in uh, Max Scheler, so who, who was Nietzsche's disciple, in his book, uh, in, in 1915, he wrote that women feel much more Schadenfreude than men because she is the weaker and therefore the more vindictive sex. So if you remember um, at the beginning of the talk, I said, you know, Schadenfreude is associated with a lack of power because it is this kind of like hidden emotional response. You know, you feel it in secret. Um, it's, it's the alternative to actually saying that you're angry with someone. Um, and, and we get this kind of feminization of Schadenfreude um, comes through in all kinds of areas. So for example, in Auden's great poem, um, The Age of Anxiety, he talks about the schadenfreude of cooks at keyholes. And cooks, so obviously, um, being women. Um, so, so you do sort of hear this, you know, you hear the echoes of, this, um, of, this, uh, uh, of these ideas about gender and power. So, of course, all of this, all this work with um, definitions in the dictionary tells us a lot about how emotion categories conduct and solidify our ideas about morality, about gender, about power, about national identity. I mean, that's one of the things that emotion history can help us do, is to understand how some of those categories are shaped and how, um, and how that history sort of is communicated. But, um, but it seems to me that there is still a question about how we might relate this this, these kind of values and attitudes to a broader question about how do people feel schadenfreude. So this is a question I think that's come up, up a couple of times um, today. Um, you know, a very simplistic version of um, work in the history of emotions in the last kind of 20 years, a very sort of simplistic reading of it might say that um, if, you, uh, if you live in a certain culture that has very clear and prescriptive dominant emotional scripts, then those scripts sort of work on you a bit like a sort of handkerchief soaked in ether. You know, you sort of absorb the um, emotional um, rules and regulations of your time and then you feel in that way and you perform emotions in that way. And of course, that's a very simplistic reading of it. Um, but even kind of more complex uh, accounts of the relationship between Emotion, emotional scripts or emotional communities or emotionologies on the one hand and the kind of lived experience or inner experience of individuals. You know, even more complex accounts like, like Monique Shears' um, 
essay that, that, that Rob talked about earlier, which focuses on emotional practices, even, even those sorts of accounts do tend to kind of lean back a little bit on an, on an idea that, um, that sort of social situations do, can ultimately determine experience and that that is really how... Um, you know how lived experience happens, and I'm happy to, to to be told that that's wrong later on. But but it seems to me that that that, that does that there's a sort of assumption that goes that runs through a lot of work on the history of emotions, which is that which is ultimately that that you know if the if the social environments in which we find ourselves you know are you know have a kind of strong sense of emotional script, then we're kind of going to end up internalising that and feeling feeling alongside that. But of course, we know that that's not really what happens because we all know that we experience ourselves sometimes at odds with a dominant emotional mood or state. Um, uh, I often think about Sarah Ahmed has this great example of the um, uh, of. Uh, um, of the, of the feminist killjoy on her wedding day. I don't know if anyone's ever read this. I, it just really reminds me of my own wedding day, so it really sort of strikes a chord, which is that, you know, on your wedding day, you're told this is going to be the happiest day of your life, this is the happiest day of your life, this is the happiest day of your life, so you're all sort of primed for it to be the happiest day of your life. But, of course, if you, if you don't feel like it's the happiest day of your life... I mean, it is possible to not to get married and not feel like it's the happiest day of your life. You know, I got married and I was awkward and I didn't like it very much. You know, um, so 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 what? How does that work? How is it possible for you to, to even though everything in the culture says this is the happiest day of your life, uh, how is it possible then for you to not feel like it's the happiest day of your life? So how do we capture these moments of non-conformity? Um, how do we capture these moments of misbehaviour? Um, and why are they important? And why are they interesting? Um, something that I think could be an interesting route to, to starting to talk about um, these moments of non-conformity um, is, um, is, is the kind of growing work around emotional styles. Um, so um, I think I have a... Here we go. So styles um, in the plural, so as opposed to like the Victorian style, which I think that uh, Stearns talks about at, at, at some point. Um, talking about styles in the plural, um, it, it, it foregrounds the performativity of the body. It foregrounds a kind of diversity of, um, of socially situated practices and patterns. Um, but, but crucially, it, it foregrounds the idea that we might move very nimbly um, and quickly between different sorts of styles, that we might sort of toggle between them quite quickly. We could rapidly adopt them, we could cast them aside. It's sort of the style that we choose to operate in depends very much on the people we're talking to and the kind of environment that we're in, but it can happen very, very fast. Um, a style can be very self-consciously performed, you know, the way that you might perform a certain style when you're talking to your elderly grandmother and that's very different to the style that you might perform talking to your children and so on. Um, or it might be a style that's, that's been repeated so often through habit that it has become completely ingrained. Um, so I think this is a very broad but interesting sort of way of thinking about emotion to, to sort of foreground, foreground style as a, as a sort of um, conceptual architecture really for it. And, and Beno Gamal says um, that talking of style necessitates a new thinking about the subject's position in relation to the social structures shaping its emotional conduct on the one hand and it's being sort of uh, passively exposed to 
bodily impulses on the other. Um, this passivity is something that interests me, and, and I'm quite curious about the relationship between style and improvisation. So improvisation is just a word I find quite useful to think with. Um, to me, improvisation means sort of moments of ingenuity, um, moments of spontaneity, um, moments when you kind of use stuff that's at your disposal, so you're appropriating existing elements, existing styles and so on, but you're sort of mashing them up and bringing them together in a, in a new way. You're just creating sudden moments of new meaning. And, and the other reason why, uh, for me, um, improvisation is quite useful is it's, it's linked uh, to humour, it's linked to comedy, and the moments in which comedy can be very disruptive and interesting. Um, so, uh, so that's so... Um, oh, sorry, hang on. So uh, just to return then to... Um, to, to these very early um, uh, uses of the word schadenfreude, we can actually think about that, that word history not in terms of meaning, um, but in terms of style, I think. Um, so if you look at the Thomas Carlyle quote and then the Sheffield Independent quote, um, you know, we have this kind of odd thing. So we have, so both times when schadenfreude appears, it appears in scare quotes. So we have this sort of moment of ironic kind of detachment. You know, we have this sense that, that Schadenfreude is a curiosity. So, you know, what the Germans call, this is a sort of odd kind of word. This is an odd kind of concept. Um, you know, we have this um, giving of definitions, which I think kind of underlines the fact that this word, this concept has an unstable meaning because it has to be defined, it has to be given a, a, a definition, and then Carlyle redefines it. And we have awkwardness, you know, we have a styled awkwardness. Um, so people, in, in all of the research I've done on people using the word schadenfreude, uh, no one has ever admitted to feeling schadenfreude themselves, except for Thomas Carlyle. And Thomas Carlyle doesn't even admit to it properly. He says, have, have not I... You know, so he's sort of... It's this awkward phrasing, it's like he's sort of, it's almost bizarre to him that he should be feeling schadenfreude, you know. So this is a very curious thing. So people normally disavow it. You know, I don't feel schadenfreude, but, you know, the Germans do or the women do or, you know, that, that person does or the theatre audience does. Um, and even when you admit it yourself, you do it in this slightly wry, ironic, distanced sort of way. So anyone who, who can remember their ready emotives... Um, will remember that he has this example of the kind of sincere utterance. So, you know, I love you, uh, written in a love letter, you know, by candlelight on your own, uh, intensifies that feeling. It's a, it's, a, it's a genuine utterance, and it creates a sort of example of that feeling, and it intensifies that emotion. And it seems to me that, that schadenfreude is almost the opposite. You know, when people utter schadenfreude, they immediately make a, open up a big gap between the word and whatever feeling might be going on behind. And, and they perform that gap, and they alert us to that gap. Um, uh, and they invite the audience to also feel that gap. So, um, and I think that's a sort of interesting point to start thinking about, about drag queens. Uh, so, um, drag, drag queens. So, Douglas Bing. Um, so, uh, schadenfreude already perhaps a word which is sort of ready to be queered, a word which has its sort of complex and ironic and rhyme distanced relationship to the real emotion, whatever that might be. So, Douglas Bing was a very, very important uh, 
drag performer in, in, in the 1930s. So you may not know, I didn't really know when I started looking into this, how, um, how important drag was in the performance culture at this time. Um, so, you know, you had your pantomime dames, who I'll talk about in a, in a minute. You had your quick-change artists who worked in the music halls and so on. You also had your, um, what were called female illusionists. Um, uh, there was one very famous one called Lint, um, uh, who are, are incredibly lifelike um, uh, representations of women and, and highly eroticised. So they wear this very erotic kind of um, outfits and jewellery and so on. Uh, and they perform in cabarets. Um, you know, you even have drag queens who, who give kind of makeup tutorials and fashion advice in magazines. So this is a, this is a huge sort of industry. Uh, and then you have someone like Douglas Bing. Um, so Bing um, uh, was a comedian, and he performed in reviews and cabarets. He performed on his own, and he also performed, you know, um, in sort of skits with other comedians. Um, uh, it's hard for us, really, to capture quite his performance style, of course, now, because we, performance doesn't, like this doesn't really leave many traces. Um, there's not many scripts and so on. But there are some reviews. Um, he fires off patter, uh, says one review. He offers barbed anecdotes. Uh, and he wears a, I like this, he wears a get-up that would shame most nightmares. Um, so he's obviously very excessive, and he's got this sort of edginess to him. Uh, and here, he performs with verve and a little cruelty. Um, Bing's um, US counterpart is uh, a guy called Gene Marlin. And he performed actually in this film, Arizona to Broadway. It's very hard to get hold of this film, but if you ever get a chance to see it, it's really, it's really, really great. Um, and again, his, his, his sort of mode, his, his style was very similar to Bing's. Uh, he's funniest when he's flashing a heckler with a sly talk and skipping all over the place. Uh, it's not hard to see that one of the things that was very clear about these, this kind of style of drag performance was that... Um, um, was there was a sort of open campness to it. So whereas a lot of drag performers in, in the years preceding uh, Bing and Marlin would have made a very clear distinction between their onstage personas and their offstage personas. So, for example, on stage they're appearing as women. Offstage they're photographed with their wives, smoking cigarettes, maybe playing football, you know, various masculine pursuits. So they're trying to make a very clear distinction. That, doesn't, that stops happening around the 1930s. And a lot of historians of, of drag have, uh, have noticed this, that there starts being a much clearer um, uh, a sort of, uh, a much clearer um, bringing together of homosexual culture and drag culture. These two things start to, to, to become much more clearly and overtly linked. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about um, schadenfreude at this point is that... Um, at the point when uh, drag performers become more overtly linked to homosexuality, they are also more overtly deploying kind of, and playing with schadenfreude, playing with schadenfreude as a way um, both to elicit a kind of audience response, but also as a kind of mode of um, self-parody. So um, what they're doing, it seems to me, is drawing on a series of existing styles um, that are coded in quite clear ways, in quite interesting ways. So that's what I'm going to talk a bit about now. And they're drawing on those stars and they're improvising with them in order to do something, I think, that's quite interesting um, to the audiences at that time. So they're making Sean Freud do quite a lot of work. So one of the styles that they're drawing on 
is the comic dame. And you probably know this sort of figure from pantomime if you've been unlucky enough to go and see pantomime when you were younger. Um, so uh, this is Dan Lino, who's a very famous comic dame in the, in the 19th century. Um, so the comic dame was a man, obviously, dressed as a woman. Yeah, the dame was often, not always, but often the villainous character in the pantomime. Um, so you get, you know, ugly sisters, evil stepmothers would normally be uh, a comic dame. Um, the portrayals are highly misogynistic. So they are portrayals often of middle-aged women, they're often middle-aged sex-starved women um, who are sort of desperate to get a man. Um, and are because they're paid by a man, they're ugly women. So, um, so this is a kind of uh, an important part of the kind of dame topos, as it were. And the, the, the stereotypes are also often racist, and I'll, I'll mention a bit more about that in a minute. Um, so the, the dame could be very aggressive, often whacking people over the head with their umbrella, um, getting tripped up themselves. Her tongue was sharp and vulgar. Um, and, and, and they are full of schadenfreude, so they enjoy very much seeing, you know, their rivals meet their dastardly, you know, downfalls and so on. Um, uh, but they also love gossiping and, 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 and hearing about the terrible things that happen to their neighbours. Um, certainly Dan Leno uh, loves um, hearing about that in his, um, in his caricatures. So, um, so, so we have the Dane figures very already established sort of... Um, uh, an established kind of way of thinking about the female impersonator as this kind of schadenfreude-soaked, kind of aggressive sort of figure. But the other model that they're playing with is, is already a very established um, homophobic cliché, really, um, which is of the gay man as a sort of misanthropic, unpleasant, sort of repressed... Character. So, a bit, you know, when I said at the beginning, Schadenfreude is linked to, to kind of not, not being able to outwardly be angry with someone, but instead sort of take it all within and, and kind of let it fester and then secretly enjoy someone else's failure. Well, that sort of model is, is very clearly linked um, to, to the homosexual man in this period. So, so for example, uh, John Todd Hunter is an Irish playwright and poet, I think, as well. And he writes The Black Cat. Uh, this is a thinly veiled portrait of Oscar Wilde in there. And this character is very unpleasant and really enjoys seeing his artist friends fail in their career and so on. And I think one of the other characters says he is a wretched little creature. So part of... So the, these drag acts who are overtly gay um, are also... Uh, deploying this stereotype and sort of turning it on themselves in quite an interesting sort of way, exaggerating it and turning it on themselves. But the third um, and very important context and, and sort of mode that they're picking up on and, and improvising with in these performances is, um, is, is, is the insult ritual. So, um, so this here is a, a very interesting incident that happened in London in Holland Park, there was um, a drag ball. So a drag ball is, is you know, a big party where lots of men get together in drag. And, um, and the person who runs the drag ball is someone called Lady Austin. And what Lady Austin didn't know was that there were a bunch of undercover police officers also in drag at this ball and that the, the ball was about to be raided. So when the ball is raided, Lady Austin turns to Inspector Francis and says... Oh, you know that guy over there, 
is he is he a policeman? Is he a policeman in drag? And Inspector Francis says um, says yes, yes, he's 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 an undercover police officer. And, and Lady Austin manages to say, I think this is extraordinary. Like, I find this actually quite moving. I just fancy that. He's too nice. I could love him and rub his jimmy for him for hours. I mean, imagine being able to come up with something that sharp, you know, when you're about to be arrested. And, you know, this is a, a you know, major crime. That, you know, it's about to be not only arrested, but sort of humiliated. It was on the front page of the newspapers and so on. Imagine having that sort of to be able to come up with that kind of retort. Uh, and that kind of retort was a really important part of, of sort of gay street culture for, for, you know, since the late 19th century. Um, I'm getting all of this, by the way, from what I think is one of the most brilliant books. It's Matt Holbrook's book, Queer London. Where he looks at the Metropolitan Police archives and, and really tries to reconstruct the reality of life in London at that time. And one of the interviews in it um, is with a market trader called Alex Purdy. And for him, camp insults. So these kinds of, fancy that, he's too nice. These sorts of insults are, are really, he calls them his safeguard. So it's a way of protecting himself. It's, it's a kind of aggression that works because it is so, as Matt Holbrook says, it's so unintelligible that it kind of confuses and baffles people. And then they leave them alone. So, so all of these things are um, are combining to, um, uh, to 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 create this kind of pattern of um, uh, of the of the Schadenfreude soaked drag queen. Um, actually, I'm going to just pass over this um, this May West uh, quote. Although anyone who's interested, I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk about it uh, in, in a moment uh, at the end. Um, so, the Schadenfreude, I think, is working on several. Um, levels. It's it's um, it's been quite subversive, um, but it's also deliberately, you know, misusing um, and playing with um, uh, homophobic stereotypes to create a sort of different kind of counter public. Um, it's it's helping to identify the performers as as homosexual, but it's also exaggerating and mocking those stereotypes to undermine them and make them almost ludicrous. And in doing that, it undercuts. Uh, conventional morality um, and one question I was thinking about when I was trying to understand what this meant was, was is this an example of what William Reddy calls an emotional refuge, I think this, this phrase has come up um, today before um, a moment when um, a person sort of experiences a, um, or you know, creates an alternative emotional regime, one that, that kind of releases them from a very repressive emotional structure. But it seems to me that that's not at all right for what's going on here. I think what's going on here isn't a a refuge, it's not a release, and it's not a release into a more authentic emotional state, which is what Reddy is is looking at. It's something very different. It's a creation of a a highly aestheticised, ironic, heavily styled sort of pose that operates in very knowing ways and that keeps reinventing itself. And it's very unstable and performative, but it doesn't necessarily suggest a, any kind of relationship with, with real feelings. And, and that seems to me to be its kind of really significant. Um, it, it seems to me that's why this is very suggestive, this example of Schadenfreude. Um, so, so one thing we can deduce from this is that the performance history tells us you know, something different to the word history. So the word history might have us thinking that no one sort of 
feels or owns up to feeling schadenfreude in the early 20th century because it's so closely aligned with, Ger- with the Germans. But obviously that's not true because the performance history shows that drag artists are using schadenfreude all the time and very explicitly. Um, so that's one thing we can deduce from all of this. Um, but, but, but the other thing, I think, is um, that it, within this kind of new context of schadenfreude being um, played with and mobilised by drag artists... Um, we also see the kind of the the idea of Schadenfreude kind of gathering new forms of um, of meaning and new sorts of values. And so now I'm just going to move on to the last um, the last part of this talk, which is um, which is about this um, film, First a Girl. Um, and this is talking a little bit about Schadenfreude as a, a more tender feeling. Um, in this part of the talk, there may or may not be a, a short film clip, and this is a moment of uh, great dramatic tension for me because I'm not quite sure whether it will work or not. Uh, so, so, so far we've talked a lot about insults and caricatures, um, but I think that also in this period we start to see Schadenfreude being reimagined as, um, a, a, in the terms of what Sontag calls um, a tender feeling or, or the passionate failures of camp. So... Um, so First a Girl, uh, it's a musical comedy, brilliant film, really recommend it, very funny, uh, based on the German film Victor and Victoria. Um, it was uh, made in 1935. It's a romantic comedy. Um, it stars Jessie Matthew playing Elizabeth, who is a runaway shop girl, an aspiring actress, and Victor, who's played by Sonny Hale, if you know him, he's very funny. Um, and he is an aspiring Shakespearean actor, but because he doesn't get any work, he uh, works the halls as a female personator. So he is a female impersonator in the musicals. Um, they become friends. He gets a terrible cold. He gets a booking that night. He's really broke. He has to take the gig. He says to her, can you go on in my place? You, know, you be the female impersonator. So this is the classic story, isn't it? The woman goes on as the man pretending to be a woman. So she goes on as him. And this is her in drag. So this is a certain kind of drag artist at the time who is very feminine. So this is actually not a bad representation of what some of the drag artists look like at this time. But the act goes terribly wrong. She slips in paint, slipping in paint, you know, shows her stockings and so on. Um, there's various other mishaps occur. And, and, and in these moments in the film, the audience, which is a, music, a working-class music hall audience, they all laugh uproariously at, at this failure. And the, the, the way the film frames it is very cruel. You know, they're really laughing at her, at her humiliation. The, the audience experiences this kind of cruel and mocking schadenfreude. This is terrible. So she, they, they generally think this is a great disaster. But there's a guy in the audience who's a theatre manager... He thinks, my God, if this is a female impersonator, then I can make some serious money because she is incredibly lifelike like a woman. Uh, so, so they become these huge celebrities when they tour Europe with, um, with what at the time would have been a very familiar um, sort of show. It's a very high glamour, you know, big cast, musical numbers and so on show. So that, that's her in, the, in this big show where she becomes a, a huge celebrity Apparently a female impersonator, so apparently a man. Anyway, the police get wind of this. They're about to be exposed. And so Sonny, uh, Sonny Hale, the man, uh, Victor, uh, suddenly at the last minute has to go on as Victoria. You following me? Does this all make sense? Yeah. So, um, 
Maybe you got a glimpse of it there. He's terrible, right? I mean, he's a really terrible performer. Um, not only is he a terrible performer, but as you can see from this, uh, the way it's paused, he thinks he's quite good. Would you say that that's probably true? So he, he looked ridiculous. His falsetto is completely unconvincing. Um, and, and as the scene plays out, you know, he falls off the swing. He, he falls into his Aphrodite shell. He gets completely wet. He trips over, you know, etc., etc. But the audience lo loves this, you know, they, they think this is hilarious. Um, but crucially, the way that the, um, the film frames the laughter is as a kind of amused, um, uh, sort of kind laughter. You know, there's a sort of... Um, we, know, we know that he thinks that he is great, uh, and he doesn't realise how badly he's failing. And yet we and the other people um, in the audience sort of recognise that he is... Um, uh, we sort of take some sort of pleasure in his sort of passionate... What, what, what Sontag calls his passionate um, failure. Sontag says that um, one of the things that Camp does is, um, is take certain pleasure in, in, in what she calls passionate failures, which I think is a really wonderful phrase and that this is a sort of you take kind of tender amusement in, in this in these moments. So here here's I think is a really great example of, of a passionate failure, of a moment of, of sort of huge self-mockery, where the pleasure that we take, I think, in his mishaps, in his failure, isn't the kind of cruel Schadenfreude that is framed at the beginning of the film, but a kind of different sort of mode of Schadenfreude. One I think that recognizes a kind of a sort of universal potential for catastrophe, a kind of recognition that so many of us experience these moments of, of badly executed and misjudged sort of experience, a recognition that our ambitions may not always sort of measure up to our abilities. Uh, I think a moment of recognising that all of us belong at various times to a community of, of the failed. Um, so um, so I, I, I'll wrap up. I'm, I've gone slightly over. Um, so I, I, there, there are, I think this talk has hoped to try and do four things. So, so one is that we can see the origin of the Schadenfreude in drag performance. We can locate that in the early 20th century. Um, as a side note, not in the 1980s, which is where it often is situated with, uh, with the Harlem drag scene, um, but, but as much, much earlier. The second thing is that we can see, um, I think, the significance of, of an ugly feeling. So this ugly feeling of schadenfreude is not in its sort of passivity or as a thwarted kind of emotion, but, but we can see that schadenfreude is being very actively deployed to create a counter-public, um, to mock conventionality and, and to mock heteronormative morality. The third thing, I think, is that we can put... Um, so looking at how schadenfreude um, is deployed in the creation of a particular style... Um, we can put a spotlight on a moment when people are exerting agency. They're not subjectivities being determined by dominant emotionalities, but they are improvising with a, a number of different emotional styles and using them comically and ironically and playfully to shift the possible meanings and resonances of that emotion and of themselves. And that this produces other affects, like, for example... Um, we heard about solidarity earlier on, feeling real perhaps, uh, feeling heard, belonging to a group. So, so, so this moment of, um, uh, 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 of deploying these different emotional styles then creates new emotional states, I would say. 
And, and the final part, point is, I think, that um, focusing on schadenfreude allows us to kind of put a spotlight on a moment when the emotion word and the emotion style is really pulled apart from the emotion as felt. And that, I think, is important because it reminds us not to collapse too easily into this idea that a socially situated, practised emotion uh, kind of automatically leads us to a notion of the, of the felt emotion. And it keeps in play a kind of different versions of the relationship between the inner and the outer and, and leaves us, therefore, a space for us to think about the individual as, as an actor, as an agent. Um, I think, to end, it's, it's important not just to ask how the emotionology interpolates the person, but to think about how the person talks back. Okay, that's me done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the UCD Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of episodes, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.